Welcome to Podship Earth. This is your host, Jared Blumenfeld. Birds evolved from dinosaurs more than 150 million years ago and then explosively diversified, culminating in more than 10,000 species distributed worldwide today. Our human relationship to birds is complex. Birds are seen as spirit messengers of the gods, and at the same time, we took the wild red jungle fowl from India and selectively bred it into domesticated chickens that are now farmed in cages. Feathers have been used for thousands of years in indigenous headpieces, and at the same time, birds like parrots and parakeets are kept as pets. Bird poop called guana was used as the first fertilizer for modern agriculture, and Charles Darwin's study of Galapagos finches was key to the formulation of evolution. Birds are all around us. We are closer to birds than any other wild animals. Birds are literally and figuratively our canaries in the coal mine. Their well-being is our well-being. Threats to birds range from habitat loss, including logging, climate change, industrial farming with pesticides, invasive species, and even cats. These have all had a devastating impact on the bird populations of the US and Canada, which in just the last 50 years have declined by 3 billion birds. That's an insane 30% of all birds gone. Three billion pairs of wings have vanished forever across our continent, from sea to shining sea. Luckily, birds have strong allies in their corner. There are an estimated 60 million active bird watchers in the US alone, and with the pandemic shutting down so much of our country, we are flocking to bird watching like never before. Everything from bird feeders to binoculars have been in short supply, and this year the birding app eBird collected more sightings in a single day than was submitted during the first two and a half years of the app's existence. I must admit coming late to the birdwatching party, but thanks to Dr. Meredith Williams, that's all about to change. I'm lucky enough to work with Meredith every day in her role running one of the most important and complex agencies in California government, the Department of Toxic Substance Control. Dr. Williams received her undergraduate degree from Yale and a doctorate in physics from North Carolina State University. Meredith then worked in Silicon Valley for Fortune 500 companies in the technology, consumer product, and chemical sectors. Meredith left the private sector to follow her passion for wetlands and birds and led the San Francisco Estuary Institute. As we'll hear, Meredith's journey is about so much more than her resume. Meredith and I meet up to get ready for my maiden birdwatching adventure. Meredith, so we're about to go, hopefully, birdwatching. What, what do we need to bring with us? What, like, what, what's, what's in the birdwatching backpack? Almost nothing, which is great. Binoculars, of course, are your starting point. So I hope you have some binoculars. I nope. know you were looking for some recently. You gave me some good advice, but... I, did, I didn't end up have, getting any, but we can, I was thinking we can, that all kind of professional bird watchers like you would have an extra pair. I do. I thought so. But it's in the office. Oh. Okay. But we could stop on the way out of town. No, that sounds no, dangerous. No, we should. We should? Yeah. But can't you just kind of no, point out? No. no. Okay. Okay. So 
you got the binoculars. How do you, if you're starting out? It's surprising how good binoculars have gotten. They're very affordable these days. So, I mean, it's still a lot to invest, but ask a bird watcher. They might have an extra pair. That's the first place you might want to try it. Like, then what do you need? <laughs> well... First of all, there are lots of different kinds of bird watchers oh, okay. in terms of some people want to count every bird and get really long lists and they track every single bird they see. And it's about the numbers or the, that very unique bird. And they chase vagrant birds that fly in unusually and they're rushing off to see that bird. So they're those kind of bird watchers. Okay. Uh, I'm a bird watcher who just, I'll watch one bird for a long time. I like bird behavior. Just I'm just fascinated by them and I think they're beautiful. So... I could just end up watching one bird for, for quite a while. You can just take it in at whatever level you want in terms of the variety of birds that you could see and how you would just experience them and enjoy them. So, and I think the only way to find that out is to bird watch a little and to see what grabs you. Um, what you do sounds really peaceful. The first thing where it sounds, the first thing sounds more like in England, there's a whole breed of people called train spotters. And I always kind of identified them with bird watchers. Like, it's it's really about how many things you've you've been able to capture, and less about the bird. The thing that you're doing just sounds like being very peaceful watching another animal. Yeah, even the people who are energized that way, unless they're doing a big day, which would be a day when they map it out to see as many birds as they can in a single day. They're not necessarily rushing around. Even they are going to have moments of really enjoying a bird. And even somebody like me chased around Golden Gate Park looking for a rare warbler that's very rarely in San Francisco. There's an amiability amongst bird watchers. There's really camaraderie. People are so nice. Um, there's always somebody better in terms of being a better bird watcher, meaning they either can identify birds better or... You know, they just have a lot of experience or they maybe they know a little bit about the ecology and people are so happy to share their information that it's really wonderful. That's one one of the things I like about it. And it tends to be every now and then you'll you'll get in a group and there'll be somebody who's a little loud, but by and large, the the folks are really kind of it's easy to get in a groove with with bird watchers and settle in and go for a long stroll and see some great birds. Bird watchers, they're everywhere. It's a, it's a big, I mean, like, it's a huge movement. And it's growing. Apparently, it's one of the fastest growing outdoor activities there is. It's, it is just kind of crazy. Um, places where I've been going for 10 years and used to be just me and five or six friends, maybe. And now, you know, it's a parking lot. And I think the pandemic has made it even more so, where a lot of people, that's how they want to get outdoors, or they've, they're they just kind of discovering it because they know it is one of the only ways to be outdoors. So I think it's going to continue to grow, which I think is great, because then more people are connected to the natural world, which obviously makes them care about it more. And how did you get into it, Meredith? Like, what, what yeah. was your journey into bird watching? I mean, I liked birds always in the yard growing up in Ohio, you know, the robins and the, and the blue jays. There was a hill in town, and I used to ride my bike up in the hill early in the morning, and I would always see bird watchers. And I said, when I'm old, air quotes, <laughs> I'm going to bird watch. And I kind of, that seed was planted, but I didn't really 
bird watch until my 30s, I'd say. In my 30s, I started volunteering for the San Francisco Bay National Wildlife Refuges that you know, are on the perimeter of the bay. You know them well. They're getting restored, a lot of them, um, back to Tidal Marsh. And I, when I volunteered, I would be doing everything from pulling out invasive plants to building shells, but there were always birds around. And I just became more and more and more fascinated with the birds, invested in binoculars, you know, and just started creeping in. You join the Audubon Society and suddenly you're getting news about different outings. And um, the next thing you know, you're, you're pretty far in. <laughs> Are you far in now? Um, I, I'm far in. I'm not pretty far in. I have taken uh, a couple bird vacations, which I think says that I'm pretty far in. <laughs> but, um, and what do those entail? The longest trip I took was to go to Brazil to the Pantanal, which is a very large wetland. It's like the Mecca of bird watching. There are many Meccas. Okay. It is a Mecca. Over the course of two weeks, we just went out every morning. We would get up before sunrise, be moving by six o'clock at the latest, usually more like 5.30. And we went to a place that's called the Parrot Crater, a giant sinkhole. Mm. And it's all, a lot of parrots live down in the sinkhole. And so you look down and you just see parrots flying around in this sinkhole. It was tremendous. And we ended up seeing 200 different species of birds there, along with some giant giant anteaters, <laughs> you know, giant river otters and... It was quite a trip, but the birds were spectacular. Our relationship to, to animals in the natural world, we don't get, especially urban dwellers, a lot of experience. Like we either have domesticated dogs and cats, but really birds, birds are all around us. Mm -hmm. And here in Sacramento, there's so many trees that the number of birds is like, I mean, you, I can hear a bird nearly all day long, all night. There's just a lot of sound, which is occupied by birds. Just looking out of my window in Sacramento the other day, I saw a Cooper's hawk just flying in a tree right across the street. And I see that, I see that hawk periodically. And there are peregrine falcons downtown. There's great bird song in Sacramento. Especially when you walk through the Capitol grounds, you can hear the high peeping, peep, peep, peep of the cedar wax wings. And, you know, you can hear the butter butts. They're really called yellow rumped warblers, but I really like to call them butter butts. <laughs> you hear them constantly. And birding by ear is a whole phenomenon hmm. in and of itself. That's the first thing that I think about when I think about birds is their song. So that entails just listening and closing your eyes and trying to identify the birds mm -hmm. by their song. Yes. Yeah. And again, it's really wonderful because so many people are generous with their knowledge. So there's a gentleman named Jerry Langham who lives out on the American River and he walks a stretch of the American River daily, pretty much, unless he's going someplace else to watch birds. And if he takes people out in the non-COVID times, um, he does a lot of his birding by ear and will describe the sounds to you and help you hear them along the way. And so you can get better that way. You can study them. All the phone apps now have bird songs on them. Hmm. Um, so so you, you push the picture of the bird yeah. and then you get the sound. And what's the one that you use? What's your favorite um, app? I, I, I use iBird. But that's just because I've used it for a long time. And then people use different bird apps for different things. For instance, there's eBird, 
where you can check off all the birds you saw and then upload it and it'll map it. And then that way somebody else can tell where a good bird watching spot is and mm. see what the trends are in the birds and um, really understand what's, what's around at any given time. So there's, there's birds that migrate through and then there's birds that stay in the neighborhood all year round. Does your sense of the seasons and where you live, is it shaped by the birds that are around you? Yeah, it really is. It really is, especially in California, but especially in the Central Valley where there are wetlands. And um, there are different superhighways for birds at various points across the country. They're called flyways. And we're on the, the, the Pacific Flyway, right on it. And so if you're in Sacramento and you're up and down this corridor, some birds are migrating north, some birds are migrating south, and this is where they, a lot of them end up, especially this time of year. There are all sorts of ducks and waterfowl that come in in the winter. And California, although it's lost a tremendous amount of habitat between duck hunters who do a great job preserving habitat in wetlands and rice farmers who used to burn the rice, now they leave it and that provides food for a lot of the birds. They manage their wetlands for habitat in the winter. So it's an embarrassment of riches for how many birds you can see up here. It feels pretty bipartisan, like like you can have all different kinds of people that feel affinity towards birds. They could be duck hunters. They could be folks that just love watching or looking at birds. It feels like a great convener of of different people from different parts of the country. It's not an urban or a rural. It feels very unifying. If somebody loves birds, then, you know, they're in the family, they're in the community. There's no judging about that. That's for sure. If a duck hunter tells you they got a northern shoveler, you know what that means, you know, and they'll. it's interesting to hear them talk about what, you know, what the different ducks are that they encounter and which ones they like and they don't like. So there's even, an, you know, a way to have that conversation across different interests. It's funny because not being in that community, it feels like a little bit like a, a closed circle of people that know a lot about birds and don't really want non-bird people in. There is a tremendous nerd factor, which I call them bird nerds. I'm a bird nerd. I can just really understand why you would say that, but my experience has been just so welcoming in terms of just when you're out and you see new bird watchers. I've been out I was a new bird, bird watcher and had people explain to me what to look at, which part of the bird, which, you know, look at the shape of the beak, look at the eyes and see if there's a ring around it, look at the different parts of the feathers. And you start off at one place and then so slowly you learn what the primary feathers are and the secondary feathers are and you kind of just learn a lot by osmosis. Some people study. I just take it in. I rely on on all of those folks who've taught me so much. Uh, and I and now I see other people who are very new to bird watching, who have a lot of knowledge imparted to them, and and that they come along. It reminds me of folk traditions where you learn a lot verbally, and it gets passed down, kind of. As someone that day in day out protects the environment, thinks about environmental issues, what role does bird watching play? Well, it is one of the ways I connect to the environment in terms of why I do environmental work in the first place. I'm I'm very passionate about habitat protection and 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 biodiversity, you know, species protection in general. It's a big area of interest for me. It's a driver 
for why I do what I do mm. and why I wanted to make. And actually, that's the whole reason I decided to do environmental work from because I, I was working in tech in semiconductor and I was volunteering on this refuge every weekend and thinking about it all the time. And I just realized it wasn't going to go away. It was under my skin. And do you remember that moment where you were like, I can't do this Silicon Valley tech job anymore. I need to fully immerse myself. Yeah. It wasn't a moment, but it was a pretty short window of being discriminated against and just hitting that glass ceiling, mm. which was, of course, complicated by race and knowing that it just was never going to be a level playing field and getting very frustrated about that. And just a really aggressive, you know, male energy in tech. I don't bring that energy. And in fact, on my way out the door, my vice president said he didn't realize you could motivate people by being positive and, and encouraging. He thought that yelling at people was the way to motivate people. So there was a culture clash going on there. And then the icing on the cake was uh, Michael Pollan's book, Botany of Desire, where he describes Johnny Appleseed and he, talks about him moving through this landscape and planting all these apple trees. And as he described the landscape in that book, I realized it was the landscape I had grown up in. Mm. And I had spent my summer camp years going to and running around outside on that landscape. And I don't, you know, I could probably find the place in the book where I said, oh, this is where my connection to the outdoors and land and place comes from. It came from you know, it came from those summer experiences of being mm. outdoors. And that happened right around the time where I was at peak frustration with my, my semiconductor work. And so those things came together. And then my dad passed away mm. and he loved what he did till the day he died. Absolutely. He was teaching girls about the importance of science or teaching middle schoolers about the importance of science. And that's why he said he didn't have time to go to the hospital. Because he had that appointment. He was very indignant that he had to go to the hospital. My dad, he was mischievous and fun, and he just enjoyed what he did. And that was just one of the things he was enjoying even at the end of his mm. life. And I wasn't enjoying my work. And I said, I deserve to enjoy my work. And so that's, that was a big motivation. So all those things came together all at once. And also your dad was a big promoter of music. So we grew up playing classical music, my sisters and I. Um, one of my sisters still plays. She's a very accomplished oboist. My parents, they didn't have money, but somehow they invested in music lessons for us year in and year out. And we, we were very involved in music. And then my father, who was a college professor, spent a year in Pittsburgh one year for his sabbatical. And got introduced to chamber music in a new way and came back to our small town, Worcester in Ohio, and missed the chamber music and said, we need chamber music here. And the next thing you know, he was starting a chamber music uh, series that had some of the premier chamber music groups in the world that would come to Worcester, play a great concert, go to my parents' house, have dinner, sit around, laugh with my father and my mother, it's remarkable. And it's up until the pandemic, it's still been going. Mm. I'm not sure really? how it'll come out of the pandemic, but um, still really a remarkable chamber music series for such a small town. 
Because those two things actually coming together, like the love of science and the love of music, actually, as you're talking about it, feels like an intersection with bird watching. It is about music and sound, and it is about science and biology and nature. When it comes to birding by ear, I do know that those musical sensibilities come in and that, you know, some people just don't hear the differences. And um, so those musical elements, they serve me well. And the science seeing that come together, there's a definite cross-section between those different worlds. I just heard of a study recently, I think I've heard of it in the last two months, of uh, the differences, they've studied the differences in bird sounds because of the pandemic, because mm. things are quieter mm. and birds, uh, the yeah. urban birds brought their, their song volumes down a notch. And so they're actually shaping their, their songs to be able to penetrate the ambient noise from humans. Um, so yeah, there is a universality to it. And like everything else, they have to adapt. That's incredible. Yeah. And the health of birds tell us a lot about the health of our environment. Yeah. I I think about that a lot because of the, the northern spotted, spotted owl, which was such a controversial species. And people would say, why do we care about this little, you know, this, this owl? Why, you know, what difference does it make? It lives in a lot of habitats that are timber habitat. And so there was a lot of tension between do we protect this habitat or do we log for the timber? It was really confrontational, just clashes for years over whether or not to protect that species. And a lot of, just a lot of tension. For me, it's really symbolic of the fact that you protect that species, but what you're really protecting is everything that's connected to that species. The whole ecosystem is so interconnected that um, when we think about birds, and, and the canary in the coal mine, often the bird is indicative of what's happening everywhere in the system. And is it still a very white male sport? Sport? I don't know if bird watching yeah. is a sport. It's, but... uh, it's white. It's super okay. white. <laughs> and how, how does that make you feel? It's fine. I mean, I live my life. So, you know, my life is, is a life that's white dominated. I'm a black woman with a PhD in physics. I'm used to being around a lot of white men. <laughs> it's just the way it goes. I don't think of it as being that male. Okay. Um, I guess it maybe is a little more male, but I just, I, that's not the way I think of it. Mm. Actually, very interesting thing happened on a bird watching forum that I'm on in San Francisco where somebody described a bird recently as looking like some other bird in blackface. Mm. And that the community on the forum came down on that person and it was a very lively couple of days on the forum of people explaining why it was so wrong to have described that bird that way and and just you know the debate about taking down that thread and for me as an observer it really was a moment i, I was really thrilled i said this is what it means to have allies yeah you know and and to have allies in the bird watching yeah. world was really it was really wonderful that's awesome yeah so Meredith, back in uh, May 2020, there was that absolutely uh, hideous, racially motivated abuse of a black bird watcher in Central Park. How, how did your bird watching experience change uh, as as a result? For me, then the black bird watchers started to come out on Twitter, nice. and it was I, I found my people. It, it really was wonderful. For it was me. an awakening. 
after that whole incident, it was just a very funny experience because so many people would say, hi, <laughs> how are you? Good to see you. It was, it was very funny how people bent over backwards right. to make me feel appreciated as a black bird watcher in the world. That's awesome. Nice. Well, where are you taking me today? We're going to go to the Kasumnas River Preserve. This time of year, the sandhill cranes are there. Mm. And, you know, they are big, strange, prehistoric looking, they are prehistoric looking birds. Um, and they are one of these birds that fly in at sunset. And that, that can be quite a spectacle. We'll see what happens today. And it's packed. I mean, there's so many people here. And all these people are here to do bird watching. I don't think all of them. I think some people are just out enjoying the walking paths and the nature. Okay, so we're going to do the wetlands here. We're coming up to no pets allowed. A bird watcher is particularly unfond of cats. Well, I know plenty of bird watchers that have cats, but I'm I'm don't have cats. I have had cats, but they were always indoor cats. But outdoor cats, I'm not a big fan. My dad required all the uh, cats in our neighborhood to wear bells. That would help, but, you know, given how many feral cats there are, that's not going to help that much. No. See, uh, I think that's a white-tailed kite hovering over there. I can't be sure. I didn't get a good look at it. Okay. It's exciting, though. I can tell you, you your pace of voice is quickened. Do you ever take pictures of them? Occasionally. Another kind of bird watching is photography bird watching. Mm. And some people are always just trying to get that shot. And in some ways, I bird better with photographers because they move a little slower sometimes. Mm. And as I mentioned, I'll watch one bird for a long time. And sometimes they're really focused. And so it allows me to just linger a little longer. It's beautiful. The light is really silky. So Canada geese, they're like a dime a dozen. And certainly people who play soccer don't like them. Yeah, they poop a lot. They poop a lot. So are there invasive birds that are in this? Yes. What, how big a problem are invasive birds, birds that aren't supposed to be where they are? Pretty big problem. They, you know, they, when they're invasive, they're out competing some other birds, some other local bird. There are certain sparrows, the house sparrow that's done, you know, everybody knows the house sparrow, but it actually outcompetes some other sparrows. Uh, starlings, of course, are invasive. You Where know, are they from? You know the story about no, no. More than 100 years ago, someone in New York City wanted to introduce every bird that was mentioned in Shakespeare's plays huh. into Central Park. And so they brought them all in, just a pair. And now there are thousands and thousands and thousands. So there was a great murmuration of starlings in Marin County the other week. A murmuration? Yes. Do you know what a murmuration is? Is that where they like move as one in the... Yes, like a school of fish. Yeah. And it was spectacular. And it was very fun to stand out in the Northgate Mall parking lot with several hundred other people and watch the show. <laughs> It's really amazing to watch, though. It's like, yeah, so fluid. So what are the birds we're just looking at? So those are great, greater white-fronted geese. 
And they kind of, when you look at them, they they do look like an alien species. They, I mean, the closer you look to them, while I just looking through the binocular, they look very otherworldly. Like we're looking at them in like That's a Star the Wars thing movie. About birds, you know, like I, very related to dinosaurs. Sometimes it's very obvious that they <laughs> they came long before we did. I mean, like right now, just the way they walk, the fact that they With can. Their necks we haven't over. talked about this, but a unique aspect of birds is that they can fly. <laughs> yes, maybe that's the real reason we love them so much. I'm one of those people, if you ask if I could be invisible or fly, that's a no-brainer. Of course I'm going to fly. Like, why would you want to be invisible? I don't know. Some people would prefer to be invisible, which I just don't even understand. Yeah, that doesn't seem like it. Of the superpowers. Oh, we're going. Okay. Whoa. There's some urgency now. <laughs> I just want to see what else is out. I can't imagine anything more wonderful than being able to fly. Me neither. Just to be able to get from point A to point B and take in the view and go whenever, even being able to flee that quickly, just a few flaps and you're out of trouble. It's amazing. Feels like a dream. Have you ever flown in a dream? Yes. Yeah, I used to when I was a kid. I flew all the time, all the time. And I only fly rarely now in my dreams. I fly like maybe once a month in my dreams still. Oh, you do? Yeah. I'm so jealous. I think you could train yourself if you're thinking about it more now. Like, I would think bird watchers maybe fly in their dreams more. Maybe it's just if you think about it. Yeah, but we ha you'll have to tell me if you start. I'll, maybe I'll, tr I'll start working on that. I'm hoping that they pop their head up so that you can see why they're called northern shovelers because their, their bills are big shovels. You can't mistake them. And what are they doing with those bills? They are, so they like shallow very shallow uh -huh. water and they're just they're just skimming around shoveling you know getting their food i notice there are a lot more ravens in san francisco it feels really do they just come in when it's the end of the world <laughs> i don't know i kind of <laughs> wondered the same thing <laughs> yeah yeah and of course in sacramento the crows that oh come in thousands and thousands and thousands of them it so, really is like a hitchcock movie it very much is yeah, it's amazing. Are those some more sandtail crane? Yep, they sure are. So where are those birds landing, do you think? The sun has pretty much gone down and we're rushing to get the last light to see the sandhill crane. I mean, not, not that it, I have to see one. No, I know, but they're really, they're very bizarre and it would be fun for you to see them. So let's stop here and see if we can can see a couple over here. Give me a second. Because they're landing there, but I just gotta find some for you. We're on the edge of the wetland, searching for the elusive sand hill oh, crane. There they come. Hang on. So, can you see them? Oh, I now I know where to tell you where to look. Okay, see those two trees? Yep. Look in front of those two trees. It's a long way away though, Meredith. That's what binoculars are for. That's why I won't let you buy cheap binoculars. Okay, because you actually have to see a long way away. That has like a black head and a white stalk. I mean, neck. Uh, they're pretty gray. Oh, it could have been a telephone pole that I saw. <laughs> <laughs> I hope not. But there are plenty out there to be seen. Okay, they're all gray. I have to look they're again. Gray. They have a red, a red spot on their head. But I, and maybe that's why you thought it was black, if you could see that. If you saw that, you have good eyes. But in between those trees right there at 12 o'clock. No, um, no, I want you to go further, further. There are some 
down there on okay. the left, but I want you to go further right. So see this other tree that's kind of stick? Yeah. Look closer to that. Okay, okay, here we go. Yeah, I see them. They are gray, yeah. They actually look like giraffes. It's, yeah, well... In the savannah, like it's hard to tell the size of them when through the binoculars. Yes, I, I really do want you to appreciate they are very big birds. Well, we saw them, Meredith. I feel good. Those are probably coming in. Is now the time they all come in? Yeah, that's why... Oh, so we shouldn't go original. then. Guess what, Jared? What? They have a very distinctive silhouette. Yeah. Like, is that Very another thing that you do neck. learn yes. with bird watching? You do, and what's well, so above, above us? Those Canadian. Those, oh. See the see the black and white? Yeah. Those are snow geese. Wow, we saw our first snow geese. Yeah, we did. That was cool. Yeah, that was cool. And you see how that black and white is, and the light hits them, and the, they flash. Yeah. They just glint. They're beautiful. And the formation they're flying in is amazing. Yeah. It's like a sideways heart shape. Always changing. That's a whole nother thing, formation, like how they fly in formation. A lot of mysteries to birds. A huge thank you to Dr. Meredith Williams for walking, talking and sharing her love of bird watching with Podship Earth today. Maybe one of the reasons Meredith is so grounded is that she spent thousands of hours looking up at the sky. Connecting to nature is the most powerful force we have in defense of the planet. And birdwatching establishes a link to our past and present with profound immediacy. My short adventure gave me the feeling of joining a big welcoming family with, as Meredith suggested, all kinds of folk traditions dating back to the dawn of time. Birding engaged all my senses in a very focused way. It felt like a meditation on nature herself. Meredith's story on the importance of enjoying our lives was reflected back to us by thousands of birds whose lack of judgment or anxiety at the state of the world helped me be present to the serenity of being alive on a planet where the murmuration of starlings is still a mystery. Thank you so much for being part of a hundred episodes of the Podship Earth Journey. None of this would be possible without you listening and keeping us going with your great feedback. And I'd definitely, definitely not have got anywhere close to 100 episodes without the outstanding help of the Podship Earth crew, sound engineer Rob Spate, executive producer David Kahn. And from me, Jared Blumenfeld, step outside, close your eyes, and birdsong will soon fill your ears and your hearts. (laughs) 